For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning. I have a lot to do this week, so let me see. Uh, let me try to do a bio, which is going to be sponsored by my good friend uh, Richard Noodleman as a, uh, for a foolish lamb for two people. One is his father-in-law, Marvin Schwartz, that's Mechel Nachman Ben Gittel, who's recovering from heart issues. And the second person is me, myself, and I. So, as he said, I hope we, we get us back in the saddle. Um, I hope that <laughs> all these uh, Fuas Shlemas will take place, obviously. Uh, so, thank you. Um, I was at a loss these days, you know, who to come up with next. But uh, for some reason, because of a certain coincidence, I decided, because I've been doing a lot of Italy lately, so I'm going to switch around a little more. And I thought of doing, because uh, I had a book on my desk and so forth, a Shviragon. It's a completely different context. The only thing is, a Shviragon is so big, it could take, you know, several parts. So let me just uh, do... We'll call the Shri Ogon Part 1, I guess, or something like that. And then maybe I'll return to another time. Um, so we're dealing now, then, in today's podcast, with a completely different context, the Gaonic period, and uh, the High Gaonic period, which is the 900s, the 10th century. And someone who was among the most famous of the Gaonim, which is before the Roshonim. Uh, or maybe I'm wrong, as you'll see. So the person we're talking about is Shrira Gaon, who um, was in the two famous yeshivas of Sur and Pumbadisa, which were in the Gaonic era, which means, um, for those who understand what I'm talking about, and I'm going to spend some time today talking about the context, as I do, it means the following. We're talking about somebody who was a rabbi in Babylonia, so he's not Ashkenaz, he's not Sephardi, he's not Italian, none of that stuff. He's old <coughs> Bavli. This is a tradition which is kind of over. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Now, it left over a big Roshan, but it doesn't exist anymore. The Iraqi Jews that you and I know are not Babylonian Jews, in the sense they keep up the old Minhagib bubble. They Sephardi eyes, one way or another. But long, long ago, as I think everyone knows, there were Jews in exile in Bavel before anywhere else. That's from the time of Tisha B'av when the Jews were exiled Nebuchadnezzar to Babylonia. And Babylonia means Iraq, Mesopotamia, the territory between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So let's call it Iraq. That's what it is today. Uh, it wasn't at that time. That Iraq is an Arab word. <clears throat> and here grew a very large Jewish community You'll be shocked. The truth is, recent uh, scholarship surprised me um, by asserting that the in Babylonia, I mean, this is uh, amazing. What was the size of the Jewish population? Two million. That's crazy. Jewish communities, especially in the Middle Ages, were tiny, tiny. And here you're talking about the fact, at least I think in the 6th century, if I remember correctly, so it was two million. Later it was less. So Bavel was an area of relatively gigantic Jewish population, 
Most of the Jews were poor farmers and stuff like that. So they settled there, you know, from Nebuchadnezzar's time and they just stayed there. But there was an elite. And as you know, the Amorim and all that uh, constituted at least a rabbinical elite in Babylonia and ended up writing up the Gemara, the Talmud. It's also the headquarters of the Karaites, the people who rejected the Talmud. It's also the headquarters of, uh, let's say, the 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 people who are the political rivals of the rabbis, which would be the Reish Galusa, the Exilarch, and the other Richie Riches, uh, who did not get along with the rabbis most of the time, and they pretty much cuss each other out in the Gemara and in other documents. So it was a regular Jewish community. The strife and uh, discontent is typical of a Jewish community. And uh, Tzabab was like an important place. Now, again... Babylonia, as we call it, Mesopotamia, long ago was part of, uh, you know, it was Babel, but then it was Persia, and then it was under the Greeks, and then it was under the Iranians, the Sasanian Persians, for 400 years. That's when the Gemara was put together, from the 200s to the 600s CE. And that's when you had that Meroim and all that. But then in the 600s, or in the 630s, <coughs> Bavel was captured by the Arabs from Arabia, the Muslims, who at the very beginning of the of the rise of Islam conquered in one battle the whole area that you and I call Iraq. And therefore all these millions of Jews or whatever, whatever the number was, came under the control of the Arabs, who did not seem to mistreat them. Um, and there were the rabbinical uh, schools, this uh, Yeshiva Zurim Pombadisa, and probably they had feeder academies and things like that. And so, uh, at least from the Ger Shrigon, the famous letter written by our hero today, uh, the Arab uh, commander, who was the son-in-law of Mohammed, Ali was his name, uh, had a, was greeted by the rabbis when he came in as conqueror. And he got along with the uh, Rabbonim. And he also got along with the Reish Galusa, because in Belville, he also had a Reish Galusa, <laughs> who was another power center. I've said many times, one of the problems with Judaism is there's no clear delineation of a power structure. So who gets to decide what? It doesn't say exactly. So in Bavel, for hundreds of years, there were always at least, at least two competing power centers who should have the final say over the Jews. One was the Resh Galusa and his whole network. And the other one were the yeshivas and their network. So the rabbis are the exilarch. And this tensions, you know, continued throughout the next several centuries. The 600s, 700s, 800s, 900s. Okay? And uh, now the exilarchs were, quote-unquote, from, in the in sense that they were opposed to the karayim. But, you know, they didn't like power grabs by the rabbis as they saw it and vice versa. Now, um, what happened was that the Arabs therefore conquered Iraq and proceeded to conquer a heck of a lot more than Iraq. Uh, from India to Spain, as I've said many times, it's a gigantic empire. It's hard to control such a large area. And in the beginning, the first dynasty that was set up by the Arabs, the Umayyad dynasty, set up their capital city in Damascus. 
and concentrated on military expansion, which meant that they left the Jews alone because they had much bigger fish to fry. They were taking over whole gigantic territories. You don't have to worry about the Jews, you know, especially in Bubble. So the bottom line is the Jews were ruled by the Arabs, but pretty much they had their own life. Um, and then in 750, the um, dynasty was wiped out by a competing dynasty, the Abbasids. And the second dynasty ruled for the next couple hundred years. That's when Oshiragon was in, during the time of the Abbasid Arab dynasty. And so he's not Ashkenazi, he's not Sephardi, he's Bavli, I guess you want to call it, but it was a very specific time and place. It's the Abbasid Empire of the 10th century. Now, I know this doesn't mean anything to most people, but I can't help it, I'm just informing you. And the original empire was humongous. But it was a little hard to control everything. And by the time the Abbasids came on, they started to lose pieces of it. So it was still a very big empire. If you want to have any idea what I'm talking about, just go online and Google the Umayyad dynasty, O-M-A-Y-A-D, I guess. And the Abbasid dynasty would be A-B-B-A-S-I-D, I suppose. And you'll see some pretty big areas, Okay. Now, when the Amayans ruled, which is in six and seven hundreds, so for the first time, all these uh, Jews who had been in different countries were now found themselves under the same country. So if you live from Spain to India, it's one Medina, like you and I today, many people listening to us are living in the United States of America. So from the Atlantic to the Pacific is all one country with same money, same language, and so forth. Uh, and that's why you have a certain single culture, which can be Latov or Larav, but for example, let's say, I'm just making this up, let's say the art school comes out and there was a new translation of I don't know what, and, it, and, it, and it's good. It could be printed in New York, but it'll spread very quickly to, to LA, to the West Coast, because it's, it's easy to transport, it's all one country. Um, today we actually have global markets, but you, you see what I'm saying? So the creation of this Islamic Arabic empire meant that all the Jews, or a rove of Klai a decisive rove of Klai Israel, was in a single country with a single language and currency and postal system and all that as commerce and so forth. And that helped spread the Talmud Bavli of the Gaonim, because they're the ones in charge of the yeshivas, of Sir and Pomadisa, throughout Jewry. You also had the opponents, the Karaites, but Rove went with the new Gemara stuff. And the Talmud emerged somehow or other as the supreme canonical text within Judaism, which is just interesting, because prior to the Arab Empire, it kind of like didn't exist, as we all know. The Gemara has a history, after all. Now, um, what that meant, among other things, was that the yeshivas in Babylonia um, could get a lot of prestige and, and flourish because they would be acknowledged and supported by Jewish communities in faraway places, all the way to Spain, all the way to Pakistan. You know, it's a huge Arab empire. And again, the Arabs pretty much left them alone, and particularly in Bavel. Many people don't know this, 
in the first 200 years, they continue to talk Yiddish and not Arabic. When I say Yiddish, of course, I'm referring to Aramaic. That was the Jewish Yiddish. And uh, that's the language the, the, the Jews spoke, even though the government was Arabic. Only some, you know, Shtadlanim and bankers and things like this learned Arabic. Uh, the Jews lived in their sort of like cultural insularity. Until they didn't. Because sooner or later, the surrounding Arabic culture, which was impressive because it had not only a religious component, but also a secular component, uh, penetrated into Jewish circles. And that's why in the 10th century, which we're talking about, you have people like Sadi going and others trying to write Hashkafa books, like Sefer Amunis Bedeos, because now people are reading Arabic literature, and they're, among other things, they're really questions about what is the true nature of religion? How do you know God is God? Define the word God. And all kinds of things like this was never before, as far as we know, were you know, out there as part of the discussion. So little by little, the Jews were emerging from their cultural insularity. Meanwhile, the two yeshivas, the Surim and Pumadiza, chugged along. It's in the 600s and the 700s, 800s. That's a long time. You had this uh, you know, uh, yeshiva continuing, and this... And now the head of the yeshiva, the Rosh Hashim, was called the Gaon. So when you talk about the Gaonim, they don't mean the smart guy or the big Talmud Chacham. In the period I'm talking about, a Gaon was an actual title. Like you'd say today, the principal of the school or the Rosh Hashiva of the yeshiva. You know, um, you know they do that now at weddings. This guy is a Rosh Hashiva in such a place, and that guy is the Rosh Hashiva, right? Which means the first guy is a Rebbe of some sort. The second guy's the top guy, the top dog. So, in those days, you didn't throw the word gaon around. You know, Ooh, my brother-in-law's a gaon, you know. You didn't, you didn't throw that word around. Uh, that was a specific title for the uh, head of the Shiva Sura and the head of Shiva Pumbadisa. And, of course, there was politics and money fights and things like that. It's always going to be. And I don't have the time now to go into all that because... The Reish Galusa wanted to get the money from the tax that the Jews paid. The Yeshivas naturally wanted to get the money from the tax that the Jews paid. There always fights over that. But um, meanwhile, the Gaonic Yeshivas chugged along. And when I say the word Yeshiva, it means not only a place of learning like we call Yeshiva today, but Yeshiva also meant the, the collectivity of the senior scholars of the institution. So the best guys, as we say today, uh, constitute a certain group. And people you send them Shilas especially. And when you send a Shila to a Gaonic Yeshiva, might take a year to get there or something like that, a year back or whatever. Although, maybe not. The communications were surprisingly good at that time because of the unity of the Arab Empire and the law and order that was there. Uh, but you, 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 the people who wrote the Shila weren't writing to a guy but they're writing to the institution. So as I've said before, people send a Shiloh to Sura or to Pumadisa. What really was going on was when the Shiloh would come, the Rosh Hashiva would call in all the top guys into executive session. And here's the Shiloh we're dealing with. You know, is, is fire, is electricity fire or not? And they'd have to sit and hock on it and work it, work it through. And the idea was we're going to send back a single answer because nobody wants to hear multiple answers. Some of us hold it is fire. Some of us not fire. That's not what they want to hear. 
they want to hear yes or no. And so, uh, as I always say, the head guy, the Rashi, would say, okay, the 20 top guys here in the school, we're locking ourselves in a room, and you can argue it out, chocolate, you know, back and forth all you want, but by the time it's over, we're going to come up with a, uh, a unified approach. In other words, so we're going to say the Yeshiva Surah says it is fire, or the Yeshiva Pomodisa says it is not fire, or whatever the case is, so that you'll speak with one voice, an institutional voice, which of course is always louder than an individual voice. So it's a peculiar period in history. Now, as I said before, in 750, the uh, first dynasty of the Amayas was killed out by their um, rivals, the Abbasids, and they took over. So from the 750, for the next 150 years, uh, the Arab world, you know, shrunk a little bit, the Arab Empire, because they lost a province here and they lost a province there, like Spain, for example. Um, but descent, basically, they held on to most of their territory. And again, if you're interested, just Google a map of the Abbasid Empire, and you'll see, if you're interested in this, that it's pretty doggone big. It wasn't as big as the Umayyad Empire, but it was pretty doggone big anyway. So I would say, roughly speaking, it's from Tunisia to... Uh, to uh, uh, India. Maybe not from Spain to India, but from Tunisia to India. That's pretty humongous as well. Okay? Uh, and the fact you had one government means uh, that, you know, the Jews are connected to each other uh, through trips and uh, business contacts and correspondence. And part of that is people, little by little, Talmudizing and, uh, you know, adopting the norms of the Talmud Babli as the official norms of Judaism. And any question you have with that, um, you send to the two yeshivas. One, it's your choice. And, um, and that's how the yeshivas used to get a lot of correspondence from people. And they also got funding. And without funding, you don't have yeshiva. Now, the second dynasty, the Abbasids, they made a move... Um, of switching the capital city of the empire from Damascus to Baghdad. Baghdad was near. In other words, Baghdad happens to... So my point is like this. They happen to locate the headquarters of the Islamic empire in a Jewish neighborhood, if I can use that. An area that had a large Jewish population once upon a time. And uh, the city they built was Baghdad. And Jews were part of that operation. So the yeshivas still stayed in the small towns of Surin Pomodisa for uh, quite a while. And at the beginning of the 900s, late 800s, they moved to Baghdad. And that's a sign that the generations were changing and the new generations aren't speaking Yiddish anymore, but are into Arabic. So the Rambam was already in the 1100s, but I mean, I'm talking now late 800s and the early 900s, the Jews are switching to Arabic. Although, you know, many of them know Aramaic as well. And um, the politics of the yeshivas was chugging along, but they began to be affected by uh, current events. In the old days, for a long time, the yeshivas, especially in the Baghdad period, the Abbasid Empire, were um, bankrolled, I would say, mainly by these rich Jewish bankers, which means that there were 
uh, there's like a word jadba, it's, you know, in the Jewish families, that they would um, be successful in uh, putting together money through trade. But there was a government at that time. There was a caliph that was the Arab emperor. But by the time you get to the 800s, certainly, even earlier, the caliph uh, ran the government uh, through a prime minister. What I mean to say is, in the very early days, the caliph was very active in the administration of the empire, and he dealt with the, uh, you know, the justice department, the foreign ministry, the defense ministry, the interior ministry, you know, housing and development, all that kind of stuff. But after a while, since all these guys lived in pleasure palaces, so um, they said, you know, I'm going to appoint one guy, he should run the government for me, called the Grand Vizier. And uh, these guys came and went because, especially among the Abbasids, because if the guy got too good, then the king might be a little suspicious of him and kill him or dismiss him. On the other hand, if he wasn't doing a good job, that's another reason for killing and dismissing him. So there's a pretty big turnover of the viziers. Under the old, uh, in the Abbasid uh, dynasty, so these guys were always not Jewish, but they always turned to these Jewish-type bankers and things like this because, um, <laughs> I'm going to say something that sounds funny. There's actually a, a dissertation on this. Um, let's say I was, a, I was appointed a vizier. I'm a guy. I'm a vizier. Um, and let's say, I mean, let's put it this way. I'm not stupid, so I'm going to use the opportunity to make some money along the side. You want to call that bribery? That's how they did business in the old days. Kickbacks, things like this. So where do you put the money? You understand? Because sooner or later, going by the averages, you're going to fall. Then what happens with the money you made? So what's a safe place to hide the money? And the answer that he would say is put it by a rich Jew uh, who will take the money and invest it for you and so on and so forth. Nobody know where it is. You will, and the Jew will, but the uh, accountants for the caliph, when they fire you, they won't know where the money is because it won't be in any Islamic uh, institution. And they even relied on the Jewish tradition of, uh, of Mesira and thinking that nobody's going to talk. And uh, it's funny how often this happened. Like, you become a vizier and you find your Jewish guy, and that's where you give him the extra money. In return, these guys had a lot of um, influence at court with the government. And in the early Gaonic period, they used that influence to help the yeshivas, to assert the authority of the rabbis, to intervene in the arguments between the the, 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 the Nazi, the Reish Kalusa, and the Rosh yeshivas. No, they were quite involved in these sorts of things. It's interesting. But overall, they were from guys in the sense that they supported the Rabbanim over, over the Karaites, over the Karayim. And that's more or less how the yeshivas operated. Um, they relied on these rich and powerful guys. They also got money from overseas, but mainly it was these 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 fellas, and it's a whole class of these uh, uh, bankers. Now they didn't deal directly with the government. They dealt, like I say, in, in the like money laundering for the viziers. I mean, you know, that's that's what it kind of boils down to. And there's even famous 
stories about this. There was a certain guy, a Jewish guy, and the vizier had money by him, and then he was fired and thrown into jail, the vizier was. Because the caliphs did this all the time. And I'm just trying to give you an idea of the world in which they lived. And um, even though the guy was in jail and a new guy was put in, but the Jewish guy continued to send, let's say, the, you know, a couple thousand dollars every month to the family of the guy in jail. And, you know, sort of like just this, a, a prudent policy. Sure enough, eventually, after some time passed, Vanahapachu, like in the Joseph story, and the guy who was in jail was restored to power. And the guy who knocked him out and had been the vizier was himself thrown into jail. Whereupon the Jew continued a policy of sending a couple thousand a month to the family who is now in jail. So the first guy was angry. And he called him and he says, you're supporting my rival. I'm going to kill you, this and that and the other. And the Jewish guy said, listen, when you were in jail, I sent you money, your family, not because I'm political, but because I believe in doing helping people do me favors. So I just did it sort of like a general humanitarian chesed. And the guy said, you know, you're right. I feel ashamed of myself. And you did exactly the right thing. And, you know, in other words, the guy recognized the humanitarian nature of this, which ultimately wasn't so much humanitarian, but it was just prudent. You understand? So this is the world in which the Gaonim and the Yeshivas operated from the point of view of the uh, administration and the money coming in. Now, uh, the Abbasid Empire was powerful at one time and controlled a lot of this territory. And Jewish communities from the different places in the territory would send money... Some of the money was grabbed by the Reish Galusa. Some of the money was grabbed by the yeshivas. And the two yeshivas would always fight with each other who should get the money. Um, but then you come to the 900s, to the 10th century, in other words. And that's when our hero lived. Because Roshir Agon lived to be 100 from 906 to 1006. It's a long time. And uh, he was from one of the gilded families, shall we say. Just like today, the yeshivas, I'm talking about Surin Pumbadisa, the Chashev yeshivas, were really a family business. There were like, I would say, seven or eight families that uh, the, the Rosh Hashiv position rotated over the centuries between them. You know what I mean? The Cutler, Salvechik, this one, you know, that kind of thing. This one got it, this one got it, that one got it. And you see many times, a father was a goan, and years later the son was a goan, and years later the grandson was a goan. You know, that's, that was the world over there. Now, this was modified by the fact that sometimes you had some richy rich type guy who stuck his own guy in there, which happened a few times. Uh, he would use his power to bribe the electors. So when a goan died, they have to choose a new guy. This guy paid off enough people. Uh, I know you're shocked to hear this. They would vote in his candidate, even though, from a strictly intellectual point of view, people would say the other guy's a bigger Tamachacham. You know, the Shiltis Rabachoy, I think many of the listeners are familiar with that to some degree. It's the oldest Sefer after the Gemara, was written by a guy who should have become the Gon, but the rich guy stubbed his own guy in there, and he was so angry he left and moved to Israel and wrote the Shiltis. 
Rachel. So such things, you know, happened. And uh, this is part of the politics of that era. But generally speaking, it was the same seven or eight families, something like that, that usually occupied the important positions in yeshiva. Number one, Rosh Hashiva. Number two, Rosh Hashiva. Number three, Rosh Hashiva. They had different names, Alufim, and uh, this word, that word. But they, that's what it boils down to. Who are the Magid Shir and who are the Machers? And who gets salaries? Because this also has to do with money. Uh, money came in from elsewhere when the times were good and supported the yeshivas. Well, well, who who actually got the salary? You know what I mean? Like, who got paid? Well, you know, the Kolil got paid and this one got paid. Yeah, but who got really paid? You know, yeah. <laughs> who got a big salary? Um, so these this this is part of life. You understand? This is how, you know, this, this is just how things operated. Now, um, in the 10th century, for various reasons, uh, several things happened to the Gaim, and therefore it were parallel to the Jews. One is that the Abbasid Empire started to crack up. In the 800s and in the 900s, they started losing provinces. Even Egypt broke away under the Fatimids. Uh, same thing happened Yiddishkeit-wise, that there were areas that used to be, quote-unquote, the provinces of the yeshivas. No, the yeshivas had a pretty good monopoly of the money coming in, and then they didn't. So the yeshivas weakened financially, and that, of course, meant that the school can't afford to have so many students or co guys. This led to a certain decline in the yeshivas, as paralleled the decline in the um, in the in the caliphate in the Arab world. Moreover, one of the reasons of breaking away provinces and things like this was that the people far away in Egypt, North Africa, and this place now in, in Iran, they said, "Why am I subservient to a faraway central caliph? I can make Shabbos for myself. I can become the ruler of Egypt and just run it very well, or Morocco, or someplace like that." So, in other words, there were desires by the provinces for independence. The strange thing is that a parallel development occurred in the 10th century, Yiddishkeit-wise, because it used to be that the two yeshivas are more or less the central, uh, well, how should I put it, the central headquarters, the central authority for a whole bunch of different pro- provincial areas. If you want to know what the Gemara means, it used to approach the yeshivas in, in in, in, in Surin Pumadisa. That's called the Gaonic system. And that means they're like they're like imperial powers. But you know, what happens in the 10th century? Uh, you start to get North Africa, has its own Yiddishkeit, people like Rebbeinu Hananel, his father Kushio. You start to get in Spain, its own Yiddishkeit, Ramoshim Mechanoch and his son after him, the, the story of the four captives that I spoke about before. Uh, in other words, independent separate Torah centers arise elsewhere in Ashkenaz, um, in Italy. People say like this, you know, we can figure out the Gemara on our own. Thank you very much. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't respect the Gonim, but I don't need you. Certainly, I don't need you to the same degree. Let's be perfectly honest. You want to learn a Gemara. Do you need to find out from the Gonim what it means? Or can a guy named Rashi write a commentary, and that Rashi, that commentary stands independent of any Gonim? That's the way things developed, as you and I know. And certainly when you get to the Tosvas, I mean, you don't need to go in them at all. They become irrelevant. 
which is why most yeshiva guys today don't know anything about the gonim, except the rare times when they're sort of quoted. And theoretically, they get a lot of prestige, but nobody reads, you know, gaonic literature. I mean, the average person doesn't do that. So these simply reflect the facts that local scholarship developed to a point where they could break away from the tutelage of the uh, gaonic yeshivas in Babylonia. And that means that we are going to um, support our, lo- our local institutions rather than send the money or as much money back to the central locations in Babylonia which was financially not good for the yeshivas in Babel, and as a result, they started to go down. So I would say the early 900s was a time, the early and middle 900s, was a time when things were up and down with the yeshivas. Sadigon was brought in this time to rescue the, the yeshiva sewer, which was going down the tubes. Uh, but then Sadigon got in the big fights, as you know, with the Reish Galus in his time. Sadi died in 942. Uh, there were these crises afterwards, in which people were grabbing for the position of Gaon, whether they were Bar or not Bar um, And Bar Hochi and non Bar is very subjective. You know, uh, a guy could be a big scholar and big common Chacham, but the other guy says, eh, he doesn't know how to learn. You know, and the public, like, what does the public know? <laughs> you know? I mean, I heard him give a shear, it sounded pretty good to me. And the other guy said, oh, you dummy. You don't know, you don't know, you can't even tell. Right, you can't even tell. So it's a very highly elitist kind of culture. We're dealing with the people who are at the top of the Torah world in in a formal way. Uh, in the middle of the nine um, hundreds, there were like some big fights over who should run the yeshivas, and the rich rich guys put their guys in, and the uh, and and the old line rabbis put their wanted their guy in, and it was a mess. And things started to really fall apart. Um, and yet, at the same time, what was happening in the Abbasid Empire was these Iranian, um, how should I put them, mafia types. That might not be exactly the right one. But they uh, came in and sort of like took over the empire. They kept the caliph there as a figurehead, but they kind of took over the empire. And it's in the middle of 900s. And... They broke it up into little pieces, the way a mafia was, you know, you control Brooklyn, I'll control Queens, and the other one controls Staten Island, you know, that kind of thing. And interestingly, um, these new guys who controlled the empire, even though officially it was still the Abbasid Empire, uh, were pretty rough and gruff. But they were also uh, not as prejudiced as the old line Muslims. So... Under old line Muslims, a Jew certainly or a Christian can't hold office in the state. But these new guys said they can. And so you found Jews um, using their financial abilities to occupy various positions in these small courts that popped over all over the Abbasid Empire, including Baghdad. And uh, the Jewish presence was something. Okay? That is the period when you ha- through which our hero grew up. He was born in 906, and so he went through this time of change where the empire sort of fell apart in the old sense. It was replaced with what they called the Buyids. You know, these were the Iranian, um, what's the right word? Gang leaders? That's not exactly the right word. But you get the idea. Who just took over power, 
Um, but we're not bad to the Jews, I must say, except when they needed money. Then they would go and just rob from people uh, because you got to pay your soldiers, you know, so you get the money wherever you can. Uh, but the Jews said the bubble is going to the devil because uh, the old conditions of stable government and calm and collected peaceful times sort of ceased to be. And that wasn't good for the economy and it wasn't good for the Jews in general. Uh, and if you follow what I've said so far, you'll understand that Judaism in general and the Shivas in particular went through a certain crisis. And uh, so you had rich Jews there at that time, but they weren't so secure in their possessions because whenever the governor or the, you know, a buoyed leader gets, uh, you know, desperate for money because they spend too much of it, they'll go and just take it from the Jew. They'll kill the guy or something like that. Or beat him up. The Muslims write about this in their chronicles. Um, and so all of a sudden, it wasn't, wasn't so safe to be a wealthy Jew. Where pri previously, it had been safe. Okay? It had been safe. So, uh, it's in these weird times that our hero grows up to the age of 60. So that means, if you understand the type of life he had, he's born into this very rabbinic family. They had a lot of yichas. He claims in his famous Yigar Shurigon that he comes from Dovin Mouth naturally, and he comes from uh, the Reish Galusa family naturally, because the Reish Galusas come from Dovin Mouth, and at least that's what they said. And um, if he wanted to, he could part of the uh, power class that plays politics, but. He says that the Rish Galusas were a lot of corrupt, which the rabbis always said, and were too tight with the Goyim. And since they were friends with the uh, Gaisha rulers, the Persians and the Muslims, you know, it's just too easy that if you, you know, have an enemy or you don't like a rabbi, it's too easy to tell the Goyim and they'll come and beat you up and kill you. I mean, they used to do that. And so uh, power corrupts. And Roshiragon says... His family, 100, 200 years before he was born, said, or 300 years before he was born, said, uh, we are resigning from the political class. We're going to devote ourselves to learning. We're leaving the the, the, the the power politics. Even though we we are players in that, because we do come from that yichus, but we're going to join the yeshivas and just devote our lives to learning and to Anova and things like, you know, and, and Midos. So that's a very uh, high level of self-perception. And um, indeed, his family uh, provided many of the Gaonim. So here's somebody growing up uh, in a very hush of a family in Baghdad, and he lives in Baghdad all of his life. Uh, but... Their position in Yeshiva is problematic, but let's put it this way. His education is a Talmudic education. That's what you did if you were going to Yeshiva. You studied the Gemara until you knew it by heart and uh, inside out. And that, that's the basis, that's the kind of knowledge that gives you your prestige and your power. Now, uh, I'm sure a guy like this, already at the age of 20 or 30, could have been a Gaon, but that wasn't in the cards. You already had plenty of people already sitting in that job. And so um, there was a lot of politics back and forth. And in his 50s, around 50, 
they they put in a guy. I won't bother you with all the names. They put in a guy that he felt should not be the uh, Rosh Hashiva, and he had his own guys. See, so see, this is a sign of the institution cracking up. Uh, Pumbadisa was his yeshiva, and started to be like Punovich today. Different factions, and they all fight each other, and things of this nature, which of which of course were kind of self-destructive. Now, um, at the age of 60, so that would be 966, I guess. He was born 906. At the age of 60, uh, he find, the, the other guy died, and he was finally elected to be the Gaon, which he did, therefore, I mean, the head of the yeshiva for his 60s, for his 70s, for his 80s, I would say even almost up to, into his, not, yeah, for 60s and 70s and 80s, that's about it, yeah. So, um, he was not a young man. But on the other hand, learning he had, and by this time life had taught him many lessons, uh, and one of the lessons was uh, don't engage in all these fights because the, you know, the house is burning and you're worried about the uh, the mosquito, you know. You're rearranging the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. Instead of having personality fights and things of that nature, uh, concentrate on rescuing the yeshivas from going under. Now, if he came in the 960s and the 970s, 980s, into the 990s, that, that's when he was there as the head of the yeshiva Pumbadisa. So he was under this time when the Abbasid Empire was in its decline and the Buyids were in power, these Iranian guys, and... You know, you had your, your wealthy Jewish class, but you couldn't rely on them for the money. And that seemed to be a big problem for the future of the yeshiva. So Shuragon did something uh, very smart, very clever, and that is a little bit like the Panavish Rav. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on outside money. And so he devoted himself, a lot of his time and effort, to maintaining a correspondence with Jewish communities elsewhere. Okay. And constantly giving them guilt trips. You used to support the yeshivas, and Torah was flourishing, and now for some reason you've abandoned the practice of your forefathers, and this is wrong, and ki mi bubble takes a sorrow, this is the place where the Gemara comes from, and you should maintain over here, even if you have yeshivas now of your own, in Spain, in France, other places like that. That's fine, but you shouldn't come at the expense. Of the mother yeshivas, you understand here in Surin Pumbadisa, especially Pumbadisa, and you know it's a, a great matter of laying guilt trips, and so he devoted a lot of time to correspondence. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, here in Hopkins, they had some research that found out he used a lot of times he used. Uh, let's put it this way: he used a lot of carites to deliver the letters. <laughs> right, he got along with the Karim pretty well. We always imagined that the. Uh, they go on him and the Karim, like, you know, hate each other. Uh, by the nine, 900s, they, everybody had been around for a long time, and this is just the way it is, and you do your thing and we do ours. But uh, he, he, he relied on uh, uh, Karites, who, merchants, who had extensive networks, as well as Rabbinite merchants who had networks, to deliver letters. And in the Cairo Geniza, they found a lot of these letters that he delivered, because the way it used to be was that you would send a letter to uh, Cairo to Egypt, and uh, that's that's as far as his um, caravan knowledge went. But in Egypt, he had people he could rely on, and they would send the letters with people or with caravans 
like to the west, all the way to Morocco, to Spain especially, and places like that. And just think, we're talking about the 10th century, and you're talking about running an international correspondence network according to the standards of that time. It must be very time-consuming, but it worked. Because the bottom line is, there's money out there. You just have to cultivate them. And you have to, uh, you know, compliment them and all the rest of it. Uh, it doesn't kiss up to them, but, you know, something like that. And uh, I would say if you read the letters of Shurigon, it kind of appeals to their best. Uh, and that's why, incidentally, the famous Iguera Shurigon, which, believe it or not, I don't want to talk about today. I'll see how it, I'll see how it goes. Uh, was written to uh, Tunisia, you know, to Kairouan, which is far away. But, you know, that means that the Jewish community in Kairouan had a, uh, a, a relationship with the Gaon, uh, who at the time he wrote this in the 980s, was in his uh, 70s, I guess, or whatever, was not a young man at all. And uh, actually, uh, late 70s. And um, uh, he had, you know, correspondence meaning T.S., with people in Spain. And if you play your cards right, and you're sufficiently diplomatic and all that, you can make it work. He was lucky. into the time in Spain, when the Spanish Jews, the rich ones, were up with Gelt, and Chazde ben Shabrut was the head guy there. And he was, uh, I would say, you know, uh, in this regard, a conservative, which means a nice Jew, and he didn't mind sending money to Bubble. He had enough money to support the local yeshivas, and he also had money to, to send to Bubble. He bought gemaras from them, things like this. Uh, other Spanish Jewish leaders did that. People in North Africa did that. People in Egypt did that. So, you know, a little here, a little here, a little there. Next thing you know, you have some money coming in. Uh, the other yeshiva of Surah was fighting with him, but eventually, you know, because they wanted the more share of the money, and eventually they worked out a deal. Actually, the way they worked out the deal was, because uh, the other guy was a Shulvan Chafni Gun in Surah, was uh, the, that uh, Shvira's son would marry the daughter of the opposing Rosh Hashiva, and uh, that would be a sign of peace, and they worked out a deal that any money that's sent specifically to Yeshiva A, they, they keep it. Yeshiva B, keep they keep it. If they send without designating which, they split it 50-50. This is just a sign that they were realizing that fights and non-unity hurts the uh, the amount of money coming in. So, uh, it just goes, he was very statesmanlike. Now, at the same time, he always said, as part of this, Send us your Shilas. Your Ovos, your predecessors used to send us all the Shilas. And haven't gotten anything from you now. And so his constant spurring resulted in a lot of Shilas being sent from the Jewish communities throughout the world uh, to Pomodisa. And that's why I think Rove of the Shilas that have survived the, the Gonic response, at least this is what I've read, um, maybe things are a little bit different now because they've published a lot of new ones from different people, but a large proportion of the responses that survived are from Shuri Gon and Son Hai Gon, from Shuri and Hai, uh, because they pushed it. And I'm not saying it was just a money-making gimmick, because it's more than that, but it was, among other things, a money-making gimmick.
And it worked, and that's why you have a lot of the Shilas. I'm talking about Gemara questions, uh, including all sorts. Uh, he encouraged and really pushed any Shiloh you have. So a lot of them are just straightforward Gemara and Halacha type uh, Shilas. But some of them are really interesting. Among the most interesting for a podcast purpose would be, you know, when they read the Gemara and Gittin about all the different cures, you know, in the six parak and all that, uh, for Kodiakos. And, you know, what do you do with all the Talmudic medicine? And he says, chuck it. Listen to this. This he's writing to his people who sent him the question. That the Tanoim Amroim were not doctors. They were not MDs. And when they talk about medicine and cures, they were going empirically, not by Ruch HaKodesh. Whatever they saw worked with people, that's what they put down. Below Divri Mitzvahim, they weren't putting them in the Gemara. Now, you might ask me a question, so why in the Gemara? Well, that's a whole, you know, can of worms by itself. And, you know, the Ramah got into trouble over that. But he's saying, this is Shreer Gom. Okay. Um, below Divri Mitzvahim, Shemakablehim Schar. So you don't get Schar by following Talmudic medicine. Al-Kain, Al-Tismichu, al Rufus. So don't do anything from the Gemara until you talk to your own doctor, <laughs> to your MD. So as I always put it, he's in favor of Western medicine. Uh, so don't say, you know, because the Gemara says you do this and that and the other. Talk to your doctor first. And he said, this is not my opinion. This is the opinion of my avos. You understand? Here in Surah and Pumadisa, the tradition is, we know what these gemaras are, but, and we know what the what the cures are, the, the plants and all the rest of it. But we don't use them unless we know empirically that they work. Okay? It's a very famous tuba. So, um, you know, it's it, it, uh, it's often quoted, and uh, also Ketzam Rab, anything things like that. So my point is that people ask them not only straightforward meaning of Gemara here or halacha questions over there, which are of course very important, uh, but questions of hashkafa, of uh, of uh, mysticism, of medicine, of science in general, of the uh, exact nature of the Agadita. And of history, that's why he wrote the famous Yigar Shuragon. So those are not halachic matters. So they're part of his whole program of saying, any question you have whatsoever about Judaism, this is the place to send to, because we're the Gedoliador. Institutionally, we're the Gedoliador. And I'll say this, he started in 966, I think. And we'll see, and he handed over to his son, when Roshir died, he, or before he died, actually, he handed over to the son of Haigon, who died in 1025. So um, you're talking about 50, about 60 years between father and son. Both of them were Rosh for a long time, each one. Those are the last years, uh, the last shining years of the Gaonic Yeshivas. Because um, after Haigon, it kind of went down the drain. Not as much as people used to think modern historian, I mean, they still chugged along, 
but they didn't have the international prestige that they had once had. Rav Shvirgon and Rav Haigon, um, the other Rishonim in Spain and, and in Provence and places like that and in North Africa, looked up to them. After that, it wasn't that way. Okay? It wasn't that way. But in this period, it was that way. And um, they therefore claim that, you know, they're the successor to Sanhedrin. Now, in the 900s, when he lived, they couldn't really make that happen anymore. There was a time in the 700s, let's say, where they kind of were like a Sanhedrin. People want to know what the Gemara means or whatever. Nobody knew except the yeshivas in Babel, so they would have to ask them. And, you know, whatever they said, is, is if you're from, that's what you got to do. Uh, or at least you're supposed to do it. So it's like the successor to Sanhedrin. By the time you get to the 900s, as they say before, you already had big Talmud Chacham elsewhere, and you couldn't put that over. But, uh, for example, Rashir Gun is a contemporary of the Rabbeinu Gershom in Ashkenaz. You see? Uh, so that means you already have big guys in far, far away northern France. You understand? Or, or the Rhineland. Uh, same thing in Spain. You have... Uh, some very big people in the Yeshiva in Cordoba, uh, starting with Moshe ben Chanoch. And so it's not like the totality of the high-level knowledge and scholarship resides in the Yeshivas of Surin Pompadisa. Plus, I think they hurt each other with, with the politics because Lashon Har gets out. You can be darn sure that uh, a merchant uh, coming from uh, Babylonia or from somebody who you picked it up from somebody coming from Babylonia, they would come and bring the merchandise, let's say, for example, to Spain or Morocco, and then they would hawk. You understand? I mean, I'm trying to show you real life. So let's say I was a merchant, and I'm bringing, uh, for argument's sake, uh, you know, leather goods, and I'm bringing it from uh, Egypt to uh, Spain. Um, so I'm, that's a trip. When I get to Spain, so I deliver my merchandise and I get paid and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, I'm there for a week. You go to Shoal on Shabbos. People say, oh, you're from Egypt. What's going on in Egypt? What's the hawk with, with the yeshivas in Babel? Oh, it's like Panovich. There's two wars going on. The Union and the Confederacy. You know what I mean? They, they're fighting each other. Why? Because this guy said he was insulted and that guy said he was insulted and argued over money. Lashar gets out. You see? And so it was, that's why Rav Shurgun showed himself to be a statesman by trying as much as possible to put out these fires because that's necessary to maintain the mystique of the yeshivas. Theoretically, it should be that Sur and Pumbadisa are like two non-political places that they're just doing nothing but devoting itself full-time to the learning and uh, and you can go to them and find in anything from the Gemara, because that's all they do, 24-7, they, um, they, what do you call it, they learn Gemara, so they know the Talmud probably better than anyone else, and they did try to cultivate, it's very interesting to me, the Abbasid Empire uh, was very heavily influenced by Turk, by Persian norms, uh, they were Arabs, of course, but they were um, captivated, the Muslims captivated by the traditions of the excuse me, of the Persian Empire. And um, per, one of the sources we have for the Lush and Hara from the 10th century is by a guy named Nosan Abavli. It's not the same person in the Gemara, I mean, Nosan Abavli, it's a different person. 
And Nelson Bobby's like a Marco Polo, you know, he's like a Benjamin of Tudela. And, uh, and he's very chatty and all the rest of it. And he describes, and the historians are always arguing whether he, whether he's full of it or not, but he describes more or less the yeshiva system in his time. This would be the time of Shurigon or a little before. And um, you see that they tried their best, uh, the yeshivas, to imitate the the norms and the ceremonies of the Arab court because they're all in Baghdad. And therefore, everything's very ceremonial and so forth. If you're interested in this, you can see the, uh, uh, a whole English translation quote of it in the art scroll from Yavon and Pompadisa, the history of Jewish people. I think I've read it before, but he says, for example, here, let me... Time I um, was going to continue this. I had to interrupt this for the rehab, but um, I think since I'm dealing with not just Shrigon, but the, the Gaonic times in ways I don't think most people are familiar with, we have some classic historiography on this old school. I think I'll save that for a part two. And I'll just uh, end this now. Once again, thanking uh, Richard Noodleman and family, uh, especially for the good wishes. And uh, we'll go Gaonim again next time. Take care. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.